invite you to take your Bible, if you have one, uh, or on your device if you choose. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, uh, we do have some available to you. And again, you can go to the welcome desk and uh, that would be our gift to you. We'd love to have you uh, have a, a Bible of your own. We're, uh, we just started last week this series that is called Once Upon a Savior. It's our series as we move towards Easter Sunday, and it is in this uh, series, or this period, as uh, Penny mentioned, called Lent. And, uh, and so we're looking at the, some of the characters, and of this, this Passion Week, the narrative that is, uh, is before us primarily in Luke, and, uh, and so that's where we're going to be today. But uh, before we do that, I just want to kind of lay a, a little bit of a, a message or a groundwork that I've mentioned before, but sometimes we, we just kind of forget, and it's been reminded, I've been reminded of this lately in conversations with people recently, and, and so just when we think of this book, when we think of God's Word, the Bible, uh, these are the scriptures that, you know, the Apostle Paul said to, to his spiritual son, Timothy, he said that you've known these things, you've known the Holy Scriptures since infancy, and that you know that these things are, are able to make you wise into salvation. And so just a reminder that this is no, no ordinary book, which we read, which we study, which we allow to shape our lives. And I've, I've mentioned this before, this is from N.T. Wright, but he says this, we read scripture in order to be refreshed in our memory and understanding of the story within which we ourselves are actors to be reminded where it has come from and where it is going to, and hence what our own part within it ought to be. And that's such a, a powerful truth because it's like when we come to any other book, we read it and we like, oh, okay, that's an interesting thing. And maybe there's some self-help book or, or even just some fiction or things that just cause us to, to think about different things. But when we come to God's word, we actually are, are in the story. We find ourselves in the story. And so if uh, this is, is new to you, but this is one thing I've, I've laid out <clears throat> before in terms of, uh, as N.T. Wright talks about this, this play or this theater of Scripture. And sometimes we, we find ourselves meditating mostly on the words of Jesus or on the Gospels or things in the New Testament, and we, we struggle with things in the Old Testament. We all do, and we've, we've talked about that in the past too. There's some difficult things for us to grasp. But if we look at this in terms of a, of a whole narrative, a whole play, as it were, and different acts of this play, then we realize that we, we can't just, you know, jump into act three or four or five without understanding. It's like jumping into a TV show or, or a, a play halfway through and you're like, I don't understand this. <clears throat> I don't know these characters. Or I don't know the, the real trajectory of this story. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so there is act one is creation. Genesis, you know, chapter 1, it lays this all out, Genesis 1 and 2, and, and then Act 2 comes shortly after that in the fall. And this is the first Adam where he was in a garden, and him and Eve, there was a failure. There was a, a, a rebellion against God, choosing to do their own thing and, and disobey God, and that had tragic implications, uh, you know, in terms of, of sin into the world. Act 3, which is a lot of the Old Testament, talks about Israel. And God establishes these covenant relationships with his people. And he says they, they've been chosen. Not that they were so special, 
but they were chosen as an instrument, as a, a tool to bring light to the nations. That was always the desire, the heart of God for his people, that they would be a blessing to the world. They instead chose to look at, at it selfishly, and they, they, fall, they fell away, they rebelled against God, and, and throughout the Old Testament we see this, this tension in this relationship between God and his being faithful to the covenant relationship and them completely turning away, rejecting, coming back, God continually redeeming and restoring his people. It revealed the heart of God in this act, and it revealed his love for his people, and also it revealed their need for a savior. Act four, there was a need for redemption. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and today as we talk about this story of Jesus being in the garden, it does throw us back to Act 1, in the garden. And Jesus now as the second Adam, where he would make right what Adam and Eve got wrong. He would make things right. There would be redemption. And Act 5 is the church, where post-resurrection, the, the Spirit came upon the people, emboldened them to, to preach the gospel. The church was formed, the bride of Christ, empowered with the Spirit, given a mission to live and to preach the gospel until he returns. You and I, we live in that act of the story. We find ourselves in that act as the church. And now we await his second coming. Now, all this to say, as we read the gospel narrative... We do this not only to understand the historical account of the life of Jesus and the way that his followers followed, but to connect ourselves with the story, to find our place in it. And today, as we look at this passage in Luke, you will indeed, I'm sure, find yourself in the story. As we often do, if we're very self-reflective and humble in our approach, recognizing that as the disciples should have had faith, and they lacked it. Where they should have stayed awake and been alert and watched and prayed with Jesus, but they fell asleep. In the moments where they disappointed, we find ourselves, yeah, that's me. That's me. That's you. And so, in context, before we come to this passage in Luke, and you can turn there, Luke chapter 2, verse 39 to 46, this comes on the heels of a little bit of what we talked about last week in, in discussing about Judas. But they had met for this Passover meal, and this would have been the day before. So Thursday, they had made these preparations in the upper room, probably earlier than tradition because Jesus knew that his time was near, and he wanted to share this last meal with his friends. And if we look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke, and seeing how this all compares and, and additions with John, there's, there's, this, there's a lot of things that happen at this meal. Luke doesn't share all those things. But if we look at it together, and we'll also cross over some of Matthew 26 today, but Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He shares a meal. And then as we learned last week, Judas is revealed to be the betrayer. And then Jesus tells them that he will be crushed. His death portrayed as the bread that was broken and the cup that was poured out as his blood would be spilt. That has happened just prior to this. And so now, verse 39. 
Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. All right, I want to take you through a few, few observations as we look at this, this text. First of all, it says that this is where Jesus usually went. He went there as usual. It was a familiar place. Uh, we talked about last week because it kind of had a crossover with Judas, understanding what he did and how that all came about. That Judas knew exactly where Jesus was going to be. This was a common place for Jesus to go and pray. And so Judas knew where to lead the temple guards to come and to seize Jesus. It was this regular pattern to go to this particular garden to pray. It was a place of peace, of comfort, where he wouldn't be disturbed, where he could be alone with the Father. I want to ask you just as a side, do you have such a place as this? A place where you just say, that's my prayer place. I go there and I'm alone and it's quiet. I'm free from distractions. I think it's pretty important that we have that. We have a place at a, out at camp at SABC, uh, Tanya talked about last week, Cross Hill. And, and it's just a place where, you know, you walk up the hill and you go to the cross. It just, it stands out on the landscape. But you can go up there anytime and, and it's just, well, it's not really quiet. There's usually wind um, howling up there. But it's just, it's, it's a solitary place. And you, you see this looming cross. And, and it's just a place for anyone to go to and, and find that time with the Lord. But you might have a, a place of your own. Maybe a, it's a retreat place that you particularly go to or a walk around your neighborhood. Some place where you just know that's where I'm going to meet with the Father. And this was the place where Jesus went. This place also had a significance. Gethsemane, this garden at the Mount of Olives. And Gethsemane, it means olive press. Okay, so there was perhaps this, this mill. What would happen is to make the, the olive oil, they would, they would press it with a, a large rock. It would just kind of extract the precious oil. And I don't think the significance is lost as to why this was this place for Jesus. Because this was what would happen to him. A picture of what would happen to him, and this was prophesied by Isaiah, where it says that he would be pierced for our transgressions. You'd be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was on him. And this was the place that Jesus went. He says to his disciples, pray that you would not fall into temptation. And you think, well, what was the, what was the temptation? You know, your mind immediately goes to, well, pray that you'll, you won't fall asleep. That, you know, temptation to, to just close your eyes, you know, while you're praying won't, won't happen. You won't fall asleep. Uh, perhaps that's a, a common Sunday morning temptation for you. I don't know. But uh, when I pray, I will confess I, I am tempted to sleep, or I just do. 
I, I pray often at night this, this prayer of examine, and, and this prayer of examine has, has like five steps, and it's more in detail than this, but it's simply this. It's like, first of all, I, I think through the day, and I give thanks to God for what's happened in the day. Secondly, I pray for, for his spirit to, to reveal to me in my thoughts things that have happened in the day, and if there's anything that I did, stepping out of that. Third, I, I confess any of my sin, things that I did wrong uh, before God. Fourth, I, I ask his forgiveness for those sins. And fifth, I look at the, the next day and say, what am I going to do? How am I going to be different? What is God going to do? And everything like that. So that's my, my five steps of prayer of examine as I lay my head on my pillow. But honestly, I probably make it to maybe step three, and I'm out. Hope I get to the prayer for forgiveness, you know, parts. But... I'll do that, in, you know, in the morning if I forget. But it's like, oh, I close my eyes to sleep. How many of you fall asleep when you pray? Just be honest. Okay. I'm not alone. When you quiet yourself and close your eyes, it happens. But is that what Jesus is saying? Pray that you wouldn't be tempted to fall asleep? No. I think he's... We can just, we can't say exactly, but he, was, he knew what was ahead. He knew how the moment would come when he would be seized, when he would be betrayed. And so he's saying, be on guard. Tune your, your spiritual ears to what is happening. And so potentially they'd be tempted to doubt. They'd be tempted to abandon Jesus. They'd be tempted to, to lose all hope in the days ahead. So he says, pray, pray. It says that he withdrew from them a stone's throw away. Now, it just basically means a little bit farther, but I always, my mind goes to things like, okay, stone's throw, like, how big is the stone? Who's throwing the stone? Is it a child? Is it, do you read scripture like me? It doesn't matter. It's just basically saying it wasn't that far away. He just kind of was a little bit beyond them. Stones throw away. It says that he knelt down to pray. And it was common, normal praying position for a Jewish man was standing. But Jesus submits himself in a posture of, of prayer. And of course, looking at how much in anguish he was going to be, he is fully kneeling before his father. Now, one thing about this, when we come to this prayer, realizing this very important truth, and Luke is one of the, the gospel writers. Luke, of course, he was not one of the 12. He was a, a doctor. He's one that is, is examining all the, all the facts, and he adds his insights as a, as a doctor into this, and we'll, we'll see that. But he, the details that he describes, but one of the things in Luke's gospel is that he just powerfully reveals to us the humanity of Jesus. And to be clear, our very clear position on who Jesus is, is that he is fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. And that means he's 100% God and 100% man. And that doesn't mathematically add up to us. It's not 50-50. He's not part God and part human. He's fully God, fully divine. And fully human. But Luke, he shows the humanity of Jesus. And we see this in the anguish that he is going through in this hour. And so he calls out 
Abba, Father. He says, if you are willing, take this cup. This cup. What does the cup represent? Often in scripture, it's a symbolic picture used for suffering. Jesus would ask his disciples when they, they were arguing among themselves which one was greatest and who was going to sit at his right and his left. And, and he said to them, can you drink this cup of suffering? Can you drink this cup that's coming? And they say, yes, yes, we can. It was a cup of, of suffering. But beyond that, there's also a picture in Scripture of, of a cup of wrath. God's wrath because of sin. Take this cup, Jesus says. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He's saying, if there, if there is another way, okay, if there's another way to pay for the sins of the world, yeah, let's do that. Yet, he says, or nevertheless, your will be done. If you're the, one of those that writes in your Bible or marks in your Bible or journal, Circle or write that word, nevertheless, or yet. This is, what I, this is what I want. In his humanity, as he was looking at what was ahead, <laughs> is there another way? And we read in other gospel accounts that, that Jesus did this three times. He, he prayed this, he went back to his disciples, they were sleeping. Went back and prayed it again. You know, if it is possible, take this cup, went back, sleeping again. It was his cry of his heart. If it's possible, take this cup. Nevertheless, your will be done. I want to tell you, this is a prime example for us of faith, of trust in God. This is what we say when we invite people to come to have faith in Jesus. And this is where I think that we get often messed up because we think we can have everything in our life the way that we want it, and we keep our mindset, we keep our, our sins, and thank you, Penny, for that was, that was powerful. Things that we, we don't want to give up. We kind of hold on to that thing, and we treasure some things. But then Jesus, we say, oh, I like Jesus too, and I really like what Jesus did for me. So I'll just add that on top of my life. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is Surrender. The way of Jesus is not my will, but yours. So you might say, God, I, I really want this in my life. I've got big plans. And I think that I could probably determine for my life what is best. Because I know me pretty good. And I think it would be better if I was healthy. And I think it would be better if I had more financial security, and on and on it goes, all the things that you say, if it, it would be better for me if it was this way. But Jesus, in this example, in this darkest hour, he says, this is what I would want. If it could be different, I'd be okay with that. Nevertheless. Your will, not mine. And so if there's one thing that maybe you take out of here today, is like if you think about your relationship with Jesus, your walk with him, and I will say this, 
and I say this to myself, preach to me, your way will disappoint you. And if you add Jesus' way to your way, you'll be disappointed in your Christian life. You have to come to a point where you say, not my way, not my will, but yours. That's hard. Nevertheless, I surrender to you. Have you done that? Luke goes on, he says, an angel strengthened him. Verse 43, only Luke's gospel mentions this, that an angel comes and ministers to Jesus. And we see this in other places in the, in the Old Testament, and angels, when they came and they, they brought food and, and, you know, allowed someone to, don't take a nap, right? Take, you know, just comforting presence of a supernatural angelic being. You know, and I read this, and, I, and my tendency, and I'll say, confess, I went this. I thought, man, wasn't that nice for Jesus? You know, in his, his moment of anguish, and he's going through this, and his, his friends are sleeping. An angel comes and ministers to him. And our tendency as humans to say, wow, good for Jesus. I wish that when I was going through a hard time and was in anguish or just stress or whatever, that just an angel would come and minister to me. And then it just like hits you right between the eyes. It says, you know what, you got better, something better than an angel. You have the actual presence and power of Jesus living within you, the Holy Spirit. Better than any angel that could come and minister to you in your hour of stress or pain or darkness. You have the actual presence and power of Jesus living, dwelling, abiding within you. Paul says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So when you're going through it, don't say, well, man, I wish I had an angel. You have the Holy Spirit. Luke says then, in this moment of anguish, it says he was sweating like drops of blood. And, you know, I'm not the scientist, and Luke was the doctor and whatever, but, you know, whether this case was a case of hematidrosis, your Bible notes might say that, or, you know, you could <clears throat> read that, Wikipedia, whatever. But it's, it is a rare condition where you're under so much stress and, and anguish, and, you know, maybe there were soldiers that experienced this going to battle, and they're just like, they're like capillaries and blood vessels and all that kind of medical stuff that I'm not an expert on bursts and comes through your sweat glands. Don't know if that was the actual case or if it was just like, it was just like clotting. It was just so intensely in agony. This is what he was going through. Eugene Peterson says in the message that he plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. Eugene had a way with words. He plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. Man. So, why was Jesus in such anguish? Now, we might think, initially, our, our logic would go to the foreknowledge that he had, that he was going to be beaten, 
His beard was going to be pulled out, crown of thorns, whipped. We think maybe it was the pain that he would physically experience. <clears throat> you know, when we anticipate pain, don't you find sometimes, like if you're going, uh, you know, in for something or, you know, there's, there's anticipation of pain could be worse than the pain itself. I know this, um, for us, I mean, we had some of you who are expecting children right now, and there's the anticipation of pain ahead. Let me just comfort you that, you know, we had three kids, it was no problem at all for me. <laughs> but I don't think that that was, that was the cause of the anguish for Jesus. I'd say, suggest two reasons. Because of the death that he would die, first of all, he would become sin for us. He would become sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin, Jesus was sinless. He had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus took on that cup, the wrath of God for humanity's sins. Not, not for your, you know, your mistakes, not your, oh, my bad, not your personality flaws, not your, the traits that you say, oh, I got that from my parents. Not the environment that, that you grew up in. Not even, sadly, the ways that you've been a victim. No, it's your sin. Your and mine, our broken response to God in rebellion. You've chosen your way over God's. And that culminated with all of humanity who have ever lived and whoever will was the weight that was on Jesus. And it was heavy. Secondly, he was in anguish because he would be forsaken by his father. And this time in the garden was a, was a foreshadowing or already the start of that. While Luke says that an angel attended him, there is no mention of the father responding to the prayer of Jesus. And this was the result of taking on the sin of humanity. On the cross, Jesus cried, why have you forsaken me? And he was also forsaken by his, his friends. One would betray him, another would deny him, and all would scatter. And if you even look at the, the account of Mark chapter 14, 51, it's, it's, there's this, this young guy that was watching, and we don't know, it was, we assume that it was Mark himself, but he you know, wasn't one of the actual 12 disciples, but he was watching, it was a commotion, maybe they were camping nearby for the Passover, and what was going on, and he went, got out of his tent, you know, maybe, and watched, and wasn't, you know, wearing much but a, you know, little... Uh, blanket or something and then they started seizing people that were around with Jesus and he just ran and he left his blanket or his tunic behind ran naked love scripture it's like but this is what happened be forsaken by everyone they'd abandoned him they ran for their life and Jesus felt the weight of that abandonment 
a few takeaways today as we, we wrap up here. First of all, um, here's first one is everything is possible, but some things are necessary. Everything is possible, but some things are necessary. This is what Jesus teaches us. He teaches us how to pray in trial. I, I don't know the things that you're going through. I know some of your stories and things right now, but, but hear this in this way, that you can pray this as Jesus did. If it is possible, remove this. Take this away. That's what Jesus prayed. I was asked one time uh, to, to visit a, a woman and pray with her for healing before she went in for a, a surgery. And she asked me to pray for her illness, but she gave me very clear instructions. She says, do not pray if it is your will, God. Don't pray that. Pray, pray our will. Like tell, tell God what we want and say like sickness be gone. Like it was kind of a, a name it and claim it, you know, sort of a thing. And, and I was kind of scratching my head and I was like, okay, wait. So you're telling me to reject the example of Jesus of how to pray when you're in your darkest hour? Now listen, we can ask. And we're told that we should ask. And we can pray in faith. And we should pray in faith. Knowing that all things are possible with God. He can and does heal. He can and does remove painful circumstances. But remember the nevertheless part of Jesus' prayer. Nevertheless, we surrender. Whatever you want, whatever you think is best. And the truth of this is this, is that it's really difficult. And so we say, God, this is hard. And yet we come to him knowing that what he went through, you know, as we read this, he said, if it's possible, remove it. Even still, I'll do your will. Secondly, Jesus saw his, his friends, his disciples, at their worst, and he still went to the cross. You know, I, I confess, if it were me, I would have probably packed it in. I was like, I'd be disappointed. I'd be like, come on, you guys, you can't even stay awake for one hour. You've been with me for three years now, and in my darkest hour, you just bail on me? And then thinking about all of humanity, <laughs> all of these self-indulgent, rebellious humans like me, I'm calling this whole thing off. Aren't you glad that I wasn't sent to be your savior? Jesus sees us at our worst. And he went the distance for us. Brennan Manning in uh, The Furious Longing of God, he says this. And the God I have come to know by sheer grace, the Jesus I met in the grounds of my own self, has furiously loved me regardless of my state, grace or disgrace. And why? For his love is never, never, never based on our performance, never conditioned by our moods of elation or depression. The furious love of God knows no shadow of alteration or change. It is reliable and always tender. Love of God. Third and finally, it's 
this statement that Jesus makes, not in Luke here, but in the Matthew account. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's not meant to be an excuse, but a call to prayer. It's often our excuse, right? Now, I'm not saying this in any way to guilt any men, but I know I felt it on Wednesday mornings at 7 recently. Oh, I really want to be there. I mean, I kind of have to because I'm opening the door. But I'm like, spirit's willing. Man, I want to go there and I want to pray with those guys. And it's been rich. It's been really good. But man, the flesh is weak, right? You feel that way this, you know, even this morning. Oh. So we use it as an excuse. We say, oh, spirit is willing. Like, I really want to do that. I really want to volunteer. I really want to pray this. I want to do something. But man, the flesh is weak. And we just toss it out there and we say, that's an excuse. But that was never the intent of it. Hear what Jesus said. He said, this is what you have to do is to pray. It was a call to prayer to follow the Lord's example in his darkest hours. He went to his knees. And to overcome the most powerful temptation that was thrown at him, which was to abandon and subvert the will of God. And so how did he draw strength to resist that temptation? He prayed. He called on the Father. And so today for you and me, the temptations that come our way are great. And if we think for a moment that we can depend on our flesh, we can just try harder, we'll fail. Our physical strength is weak. We'll fail the test. We can't fight temptation like that. It is a spiritual battle. It's won through prayer. And so as the Lord gives us this example, we find our strength in dependence on God. And we submit to his will. Let's pray. God, thank you that your word uh, just confronts us uh, with who we are. And most importantly, what you did for us. Thank you that you submitted your, your will to the fathers, that you went the distance for us, even though the weight was heavy. God, I pray that you would gently and lovingly just call us to yourself today to help us to draw strength from you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who believe that you bring comfort and you guide us. And those who are going through troubled waters and dark times today can find strength in you and in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.